It's not an easy time to be an immigration judge. The case backlog is growing thanks to a surge in immigration, and now the Federal Labor Relations Authority has voted for the second time to take away collective bargaining rights from immigration judges who work for the Justice Department. For an update, we turn to the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, Mimit Sankov. Ms. Sankov, good to have you on. Thank you so much. And let's start with the FLRA. They voted that just the other day that the judges should not, the immigration judges should not be part of any bargaining unit. This is a reaffirmation of a vote they made in 2020. What's going on here and what does it mean? The decision came out late Friday evening. And so what we saw in that decision that just came out on Friday were were Two, the two anti-union members of the Federal Labor Relations Authority issue what we view as a lawless decision because it is ignoring the wishes of the parties. It's, it's basically saying that the union should be decertified and that the regional director should act quickly in doing so. But, it, but the decision itself is a poorly reasoned one from our perspective. What is the practical effect of it, though? As it stands, if the decision um, stands and the regional director decertifies us, there would be no members within the bargaining unit. So you would just revert to being regular employees of the Justice Department as judges. That's correct. We would lose our voice. We would lose our ability to speak with you today about the concerns that um, plague the immigration court. And the grounds for the original petition to decertify were that judges should be considered management employees and not regular working employees. And I mean, what is the case in your view? It's an extremely weak case. And when it was look at, looked at in great depth by the regional director, she soundly found that that was a position that couldn't be supported. And in a multi-page uh, decision, rendered a conclusion that we were not management officials. The decision went up to the Federal Labor Relations Authority, they disagreed with her and ordered her to decertify us. Um, we filed motions to reconsider with the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And just as of Friday, those have, those, some of those motions have been denied. And when you refer to the regional director, that is the regional director of? Of the Federal Labor Relations I Authority. See. Just to back up for a moment, how many immigration judges are there? How large a unit are you? Well, By way of last count, we're around 580 or so immigration judges serving at the roughly 70 immigration courts around the country. So while we're not a huge group, we're a very um, significant group because of the really important work that we do. And by the way, you are an active functioning judge in addition to the union president, correct? That's correct. I'm seated at the New York Federal Plaza Immigration Court in Lower Manhattan. All right. And let's get to the work right now, because judging from what you see on television, it's hard to discern what's going on with immigration. But from what I understand, you've got a backlog growing for the immigration court system. And so give us a sense of the dimensions of that and what that means for the life, the day to day life of an immigration judge. Tom, by last count, we're at 1.6 million cases in the backlog. And when I calculate that out, On average, it comes out to about 2,700 cases per judge. We are literally on the bench almost every day, all day, hearing cases. And no matter what we do to try to address that backlog, it just keeps growing. And I have some reasons as to why I think that's the case. And the backlog then would suppose the cases stop coming in, just to make a theoretical calculation here. 
How long would it take to work through all those cases? If you were to hold four trials a day and not take any vacation time and never be sick or never have a snow day, it might take you three or four, maybe three years or so to get through that. Wow. And as a judge sitting on the bench, you see this mass of cases. Do they all look alike to you or is each one in, in fact individual? Every single case is has to be treated as an individual matter. In order to provide due process, we have to consider all of the facts and circumstances for the individual proceeding presented before us and apply their specific circumstances to the case law. And if we don't do it right, if we cut corners, that case will get appealed to a higher authority and end up in a remand to us to re- be redone again. So yes, we cannot um, adjudicate these cases en masse They need to be given the procedural due process that our Constitution requires. We're speaking with Mimi Sankoff. She's an immigration judge and president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. Kind of unrelated, maybe, but does your union certification give you some leverage, if you were to keep it somehow, over the ability to work the cases and how you handle that backlog? Is there a connection there? There's absolutely a connection. And the connection is this. The work of the judges on the bench is a reflection of how much work they have coming in their door and how much pressure they're receiving from the Department of Justice managers to adjudicate those cases really quickly. So that tension directly affects how the judges are feeling, what kind of pressure they're feeling to adjudicate those three to four trials a day. And when you when you think about this as a, a period in which judges are trying to preside during COVID, you can imagine the level of pressure that they feel. And do you also try to bargain? I mean, I guess apparently this would have to come to Congress as an appropriation, but it sounds like you need more judges. We need more judges, but even more than more judges, we always need more judge teams. And by that, I mean all of the personnel that come into play to ensure that when I'm hearing a case, the hearing notices have gone out properly, that the documents that have been filed in connection with the case have been served on the court, um, that they are before the judge. All of those pieces have to be in play for me to be able to fairly adjudicate the case. Getting back to the issue of the status of the judges as a bargaining unit, the vote was two to one with the two Trump administration nominees as Republicans voting against and Ernest Dubester, the Democratic chairman, voting to not decertify the union. There is one appointee pending before the Senate, which would knock out one of the Republican members, James Abbott. So are you waiting out that process or what's your next step here? We're absolutely going to take legal action within days to address what we find is a what we believe is a decision that is both poorly reasoned, not in line with this government's pro-union, pro-collective bargaining stance and we will take immediate action. And the other issue I wanted to ask you about is the content of a hearing that happened last week with respect to what type of federal employee, one way or the other, that immigration judges are, and that you would like to see Congress maybe move the whole process out of the Justice Department, or Congress would like to do it. What's going on there? Tom, you're right to bring up both. Um, We have a short-range strategy and a long-range strategy. The long-range is the Article I solution. It is the only lasting solution that will address the concerns and what plagues the immigration court. To give you a little bit of context, the biggest problem that we see at the immigration court is the fact that we are ruled, essentially, by a political attorney general. 
And as much as we want to take the politics out of the Justice Department, there is no doubt that policy is influenced through the attorney general. And so with the attorney general, attorneys general being appointed every few years, sometimes every couple of years, they really do reflect a very different viewpoints of the presidents that they are serving. And so what we need to have is the immigration courts taken out of the Department of Justice so that we will not have that political interference deciding how immigration judges are to be adjudicating their cases. And if it did become Title I, which is a creation of Congress, a congressional agency in effect, how would it work administratively? That is to say, how would you make sure that the judges hired are not politically biased? The Congress has looked at uh, formulations for creating these sort these courts that we call Article I courts, and one model has been the tax court. And we're waiting and hopeful that Representative Lofgren will produce a bill that will carefully examine how you would create an independent Article I immigration court that would address precisely the types of concerns that you're raising. And do you sense there is bipartisan support for that idea? We're very hopeful. The, the idea is a bipartisan, it has bipartisan appeal. Um, it's a good governance solution to a problem that we've been seeing. It is a rule of law solution that would address the burgeoning backlog and the fact that we see wide swings in the way that immigration cases have been adjudicated from president to president. And I would also note that going back to 1981, the first notion of an Article I immigration court was proposed by a Republican. Well, let's hope a year from now you're in a better place on all these counts. Mimi Sankov is an immigration judge and president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy while 
although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at Grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.